reading from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18, the, uh, the, the end of the epistle. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which are the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. I want to invite our children to Children's Church. And uh, we've got a lot to be thankful for. I've got a long prayer list this morning. So um, let's go to the Lord and thank him for his chronic goodness to us. Lord, indeed, you are great, and our words can barely scratch the greatness of who you are. Lord, we, we try to express it in most glorious and lofty terms, but even that falls short. Thank you that you give us eternity to continue to build words around your greatness and to praise you for that. So thank you for being our God and for being with us. And Father, we want to pray for our brother Bob Kempel, who's in the hospital. Lord, I'm grateful. As I was talking with him this week, I was just struck by your common grace in this hospital and all the technology that's availed to help him recover to diagnose the problem and, and to cure him. A hundred years ago, they wouldn't have had these opportunities, but Lord, by your grace, you've given us all these opportunities to, all these technologies, all these understandings of medical science to help our brother. And so thank you that you have him in the palm of your hand, Lord, that uh, you will be with him through the surgery, through the operation. Father, that it is a miracle they can replace a heart valve uh, at all let alone without having to uh, take a chest wide open and all of those things. It, just, it, it is amazing to think of your, your kindness to humanity that we've been able to fight against the effects of sin uh, so effectively. So, Lord, we pray for Bob and the upcoming surgery that he's got. Father, we pray for Judy that you would give her uh, strength and patience and wisdom, that her love and concern for her husband would be wrapped in her trust and her hope in you. And uh, we just look forward to the day when Bob re is returned to us and worships with us again. Thank you for your mercy and for the gift that he is. And Father, we want to pray also for Melissa Bohannon. Um, she has been through surgery where they did have to open her chest, and she will have to go for another heart valve replacement. Uh, but, Lord, there are many other complications. So would you give the doctors, uh, in Melissa's case, great wisdom and understanding. Give her and um, Dave and Nathan and uh, Charlotte patience and trust in you, and uh, we just pray that you would lead her through that surgery and uh, recover her as well. Uh, Father, thank you for the wonderful work that you've done with Daniel Holmquist, Lord, that the, the tumor is gone, that the, the miracle of radiation treatment and chemotherapy and, Lord, just your healing hand has totally removed it. We thank you that our brother is, is restored. We pray that you'd continue to increase his health help his body recover from chemotherapy and, and the, the trial that that is. And we pray for uh, their church this morning. We pray for Calvary E.D. Free, that uh, Daniel would be leading them in heartfelt worship, having had that brush with mortality, 
that that would refresh his hope and his, his trust in you. So I pray that their service had gone well this morning and that uh, they are rejoicing at Daniel's recovery also. Father, I want to pray also for your church. Two of the churches that we prayed for a, a couple of months ago, um, and there's good reports, Father, from Hope uh, uh, Church in Albuquerque. They have a new pastor, and we thank you that you have answered the prayers of those saints and, and my prayers and brought them the right person. I pray that, uh, that Pastor Ben is the right person for that church, that you will lead uh, through him that body to, to worship you more fully. And, Father, for the good news that Church of the Canyons has a candidate, um, Lord, it's been three years, and, and Father, we know what it's like to go three years without a pastor, what a struggle that is. And so uh, thank you that you have a candidate for them. We pray that this is the right man, that the other ones you had, uh, you had sent away, that they were clearly not the right person. We pray for this new candidate, um, that this would be the man that you have to lead that church to glorify you and to make your name known in uh, the, can uh, the, uh, um, uh, the area. I can't remember where they're at. Um, Father, we thank you also that uh, though Ian became a hurricane and tore through uh, um, Florida, though there was a lot of destruction, and tragically there were deaths, Lord, our, our friends, the Pickerings, were safe, and you, uh, you delivered them through that. Father, we pray that they're now, and you know, as they begin to rebuild and, and try to get water and electricity turned back on, Lord, that you would bless their, their, um, their time there, that they would see the the fury that nature can bring and know, Lord, that even that hurricane was in the cup of your hand and didn't go anywhere that you didn't want it to do. Uh, as frightening as a, a hurricane can be, Lord, it's still under your control. And Father, we're going to celebrate the Crawfords this afternoon, and I just want to pray for them now. We'll pray for them again. Uh, Lord, thank you for the blessing that they have been to us. Um, Father, for, for Chris and Katie, what a, what a joy it has been to serve you with them, to worship you with them. And we ask your rich blessing on them as they pack up and they head back to the Midwest. Father, would you go with them? And I pray that their, their arrival would be a, a source of joy for them as their departure is a source of sorrow for us. But Lord, we know that they're your people and you will send them where you decide. So bless them, we pray. And Lord, now as we turn to your word, Holy Spirit, we need to, we need to understand. We need to hear and to believe and to trust to accept what you have to say to us. And so, Lord, would you open our hearts and our minds to that end. We ask all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. So um, last week I was at uh, Berean Fellowship in Palmdale and got to preach with the saints there. It felt very much at home. The, the church is about the same size as us. There are a lot of engineers. There were just a lot of people that it felt very at home. So I just want you to know we have a kindred spirit uh, with, uh, with uh, Berean Fellowship. Uh, I really like their pastor and their previous pastor, and, and so it was just a good, sweet time to be together. Uh, but I'm back. <laughs> I didn't disappear forever, so that's good. So what we're going to do today is we're going to finish the book of Second Peter. I can't believe we're done already. Uh, I really don't want to finish it, but it's God's word, and we got to go where he goes with this. So um, what Peter is going to do for us this morning in these, these concluding verses is he's going to really wrap up his letter. He's going to bring a lot of the things that he's been saying, not only in 2 Peter, but also from 1 Peter. And he's going to kind of bring them to bear in this last section and give us one more blast of encouragement so that we might grow in grace. And so before I start, let me just kind of recap what, what 2 Peter is about. 2 Peter is, the, the main theme is one of our verses today, the last, second to the last verse, no, the last verse of this, uh, this book. 
but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter wants us to do, is grow in the grace of Jesus. And what we've said is, what it means to grow in grace is to not grow to receive grace, but you're in grace. You've received the grace of God's salvation. Now grow in that. Become what that's made you to be. He wants us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so that was his main message. And the main threat to that was, there are false teachers who will distort that knowledge that you need. They will distort the promises of God that you need to grow in grace. And so he gives us a lot of warning about these guys. Watch out for these false teachers. And then he comes back here at the end again to strengthen us. He says, here's how you know they're wrong. And he points us to a sure source since he knows he's not going to be here forever. He's pointing us to a sure source, and he does it again here. So let's go ahead and take a look. He said, starts in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to found, be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So what does he say? He, what is he talking about? He says, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, what are the these that we are waiting for? Well, you have to back up a couple of verses. And what he's talking about there is he says in uh, beginning in verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of these, because of which, um, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and heavenly bodies will be melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Waiting for these, this is the promise. So what Peter wants us to do to help us, to equip us to grow in grace, he points us to the end. He, he brings up our eschatology. The, the glory is this earth, as opposed as it is to Christ and his church, is not going to be around forever. What we're waiting for is a home in which righteousness dwells. That's the hope that we have. So I've said this before. I'll, I'll keep saying it because I think it's really important. We need to be heavenly minded. We need to be watching for that promise to the end, that eschatological promise that it gets better. It, it's, this is not the final state. The, the church will triumph. God will be, prom, or will be faithful to lead us to that place where righteousness dwells. Uh, how many of you want to be righteous? How many of you are sick to death of that same sin coming back up again, or new sins inventing ways to, to trip you up, or, or dissatisfaction or grumbling? This is not where we're going to land. Where we're going to land is in a new heavens and a new earth where sin and death and hell and Satan and all that opposes is put away where righteousness dwells. And so Peter says, fix your mind on that since we're waiting for these. So we're waiting for them. They're not here yet. And, and sometimes when we're waiting, we can get a little grumbly about it. Why is it taking so long? Why hasn't Jesus returned? It's been 2,000 years. Isn't that enough? Well, no, we're waiting for these. And, and the great thing is that while we're waiting, in the in-between time, we have these great and precious promises that he's given us, that he's walking with us, he's, he's going with us through this. So therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, it takes patience, it takes endurance. He says, be diligent. In other words, you don't wait for these by sitting idly and twiddling your thumbs and just kind of ho-hum, whatever comes, comes. Be diligent to be found with it by him without spot or blemish. So we're not waiting idly. As a matter of fact, in, in chapter or verse 13, just a few before this, he says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. Oh, I'm sorry, wrong one. Second Peter, uh, verse 12, waiting for and hastening 
the coming of the day of God. So there's something that we can do. We can wait, but we can also hasten that day. We can help bring that day in. How did we do that? Well, when, we pre when I preached that previously, I said the way we do that is by preaching the gospel to the nations. We do what God told us to do in the meantime. Go make disciples. Be my witnesses. And when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then all Israel will be saved. It's over when the full number comes in. So how do we hasten that day? We'd be busy about what he told us to be busy about. Make disciples. Preach the gospel. Share. So we're, we're waiting for that. We're being diligent now. He goes on to say that we are diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. By whom? Well, probably speaking there of God, not Jesus particularly, but God in general. And then he says that we are to be found without spot or blemish. So that's that idea of growing in grace. We're, we're heading away from conformity to the world. We're heading toward conformity to Jesus. And Jesus is the one who is without spot or blemish. From 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 19, Peter says, But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So that's where I got this idea that, that to grow in grace is to be conformed to the image. We are being diligent to be found without spot or blemish, just like Jesus is without spot or blemish. That's the direction. That's the trajectory we're heading. So to grow in grace is to be more like him. It doesn't mean we're passive. It means that we are um, actually engaging in this. So that's what we saw at the beginning in chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 5. He says, for this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And he goes through all these lists of different virtues that we're supposed to engage in. This is how we grow in grace is by pursuing these good things that he's told us to do. That's, that's what we're supposed to be doing is, is while we're waiting, in the interim between now and Christ's return, we are supposed to engage in this and pursue those things. So then in verse 15, he says, And count the patience of, the Lord, of our Lord as salvation. So why is it taking so long? Why, why is it so hard for me to grow sometimes? Why do I stumble so easily? Well, we don't look at that and say, well, this is just God taking too long. It is the patience of the Lord. God is being patient with us. Why is he doing that? Well, in verse, chapter 3, verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that you should all reach repentance. So why is it taking so long for Jesus to come back? Because we, God is patient with us. He doesn't, he doesn't abandon us the first time we mess up. He's being patient with us. He's leading us towards that. He wants us to reach full repentance. And as a matter of fact, what Peter's going to do in a few minutes is he's going to show us what repentance actually looks like here. So we got to remember that, that though sometimes it feels like he's slow, though sometimes it feels like, Lord, I just wish you would come back. I can't deal with one more bit of bad news. The, the one more thing going wrong, what we have to look at that and, and what Peter wants us to think of that is, this is God's patience towards me. He wants me to continue to grow. He's giving me time. He's going to come at the right moment. So don't forget the stories that Peter told us earlier. He told us about Lot and his, his soul being tormented in, in Sodom as he saw the unrighteousness around him. And Peter's message there was, God doesn't forget the unrighteousness, nor does he forget his, his saints. He's patient, and at the right time, he will redeem his people and bring judgment on the rest. He did the same thing with the story of Noah. The world was filled with violence, and God preserved Noah and his family and brought judgment on the world. So this is how we endure with patience, is we're looking at this and saying, Lord, you are not slow to fulfill your promises, as some count slowness. 
We know that you're coming. We know that righteousness will be here. We are waiting for that heaven, or for that new heavens and that new earth in which righteousness dwells. So count the patience of our Lord as salvation. And then in the other half of verse 15, he says, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you concerning, according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of these matters. So I love that phrase, our beloved brother Paul. So when you consider the relationship between Peter and Paul, there's not a whole bunch in the Bible on it. They met at uh, the Council of Jerusalem. Paul got up and related what was going on with the Gentiles. Peter got up and spoke. So they were both there. Uh, Peter, or Paul, when he's talking about his conversion, he says he went up to Jerusalem and he met with the apostles. He met with Cephas, with another name for Paul, or Paul, Peter, rather. So they've met each other. But the one story that we have where there's the most detail in it of their meeting is not a good one. Peter went to Antioch. He traveled to Antioch, and he's with the church in Antioch. And the church in Antioch was a mixed crowd. It was Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. And some people from James came. And there's a bunch of theories on why this happened and who the bad guy is. It doesn't really matter. People from James came, and whatever they did, whatever they said, it caused Peter to withdraw from the Gentiles. But not just Peter, the Jews. So the Jews in the church withdrew from the Gentiles. And it got so bad, even Barnabas withdrew. That was how bad this, this error got. And so what happened is Paul, he says um, that he looked, he saw what was going on. He rebuked Peter to his face because he stood condemned. How would you like a brother to come up and stand in, in your face that you stand condemned because of what you're doing? He says he stood condemned because his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. How would you like a brother to come and say, you are out of line with the gospel by doing this? And so there, seems, there would seem to be tension there. And, and I think if, if somebody came to a non-Christian and, and said those kinds of things, you know, rebuke them, often they're not very happy about that. And those two do not become best friends. Here's what true repentance looks like. Peter receives that rebuke. You're right, Peter, or Paul, I was out of line with the gospel. How can I, as a Jew, try to tell Gentiles they got to live as Jews? That, that, you're right, that's wrong. And so how does he address Peter now? Our, including my beloved brother. He welcomed that. So if someone comes to you and confronts you in your sin, if someone comes and says, you are out of line with the gospel by doing this, true repentance, real repentance doesn't look like, well, why would you say that to me? That's so rude. Real repentance would be, oh my gosh, you're right. I'm sorry. And then count that person as a beloved brother. But it goes more than just, he's a beloved brother. Peter goes farther to acknowledge that, that Paul was right. He says, according to the wisdom given to him. So who gave him this wisdom? It must be God. That's, that's why James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. It's godly wisdom that Peter is, is uh, recognizing here. So not, when he looks at Paul, he doesn't say, oh, this jerk confronted me and embarrassed me in front of the church in Antioch. He says, no, this is my beloved brother, and he has wisdom from God in rebuking me. That's what true repentance looks like. It is a complete 180 in saying, you're right, I was wrong. Absolutely. So Paul has written to them, whoever uh, Peter's audience is in 2 Peter, kind of believe it's probably at least some of the churches that he mentioned in 1 Peter. But whoever it is, 
he's recognizing that Paul has written to them before, and he says that he, he speaks of the same things in, in all of these matters. When Paul writes to them, he does the same. What is he saying? What does he do? He doesn't cite anything. He just kind of mentions it. Well, Paul has a very big concern that the saints grow in grace too, doesn't he? Read his epistles. They start out with a, a general greeting, a prayer, a doctrinal section. It's not all doctrine, but it's primarily doctrinal. And then the end of his letters is always application. Do this, don't do that. He wants us all to grow in grace through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, not just by trying harder. So what Peter is saying here is, Peter, remember, has said, I'm not going to be here forever. The Lord has made it clear to me, I'm about to die. So what he told us then at the end of chapter 1 was, I want you to see something that's a sure source for the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Since I'm not going to be here to authenticate it, look at the Bible. He appeals to God's word. He does the same thing here. He says, look at what, what Paul has done. He writes the same things that I'm talking about to you. Now, I don't think Peter had any idea when Paul was going to die. The only thing we see is he knows when he's going to die. So he's looking to Peter or Paul. And he's saying, look at Paul's letters. Pay attention to that. Listen to what he's got to say. This is repentance. This is the man who has been rebuked by Paul and is now holding him up and saying, this is the guy. So remember the, the threat to growing in grace that Peter's been dealing with his false teachers. They'll come in and they'll tell you things that aren't true about Jesus, or they'll distort these great and precious promises. They'll, they'll twist them, and, and their, their whole underlying motivation is sensuality, which isn't always sexual. It's just self-indulgent. It's greed, it's pride, it's arrogance, it's those kinds of things. It can express itself as sexual immorality as well, but it's a self-indulgent, fleshly, worldly way of doing things. And they distort the promises of God to further those. So what else do they distort? Well, remember when he pointed out the stories from the scripture, he said, these people willfully are ignorant of the fact that God has judged in the past that he will judge in the future. So they distort those scriptures, and look where he goes. He said, there are some things in them, Paul's writings, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So what, Paul, or what Peter is telling us is, look, the, Paul writes things, and some of the things he writes are hard. Aren't you glad to hear that? I am so relieved that it's not just me, that Peter has, says, you know what? Some of this stuff is difficult. And, and so what it is is they get a hold of these difficult things and they twist them. They distort them. They, they take what's hard to understand and they turn it around and, and make it bizarre. They twist it into weird shapes. They twist it to their own destruction. So there are things in the Bible that are difficult to understand. Now, one of the most important lessons I think I learned in seminary was never say, interpret the clear passage of scripture from the difficult ones or the other way around, interpret the difficult passages from the clear ones. And the reason you don't do that is because what's clear to position A is hard to position B, but what's clear to position B is hard to position A. And so you will wind up just reinforcing your position. You'll interpret everything in light of what you already believe instead of trying to grab it all and bring it together. So when we get to this part about there are things in Paul that are hard to understand, how are we supposed to interpret them? Well, one of the things I think he's pointing us to is the false teachers here, the warning of the false teachers. What they will do is they will take the hard-to-understand things and make that the major, big part of their ministry. So, for example, in uh, 1 Corinthians, when, P when Paul's arguing for the resurrection from the dead, he says, so some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead. What does it mean, then, that you're baptized for the dead? 
And so that's it. That's all that we get in the entire Bible about baptism for the dead. What does it mean? I don't know. How was it practiced? I don't know. Who was baptized? I don't know. But somebody's going to come in and take that one phrase and build an entire doctrine around it. That's going to be the major premise of their ministry now. We found, I found out what this means. Use it in light of how Paul used it, which is some people are denying that there's a resurrection from the dead, but in whatever it means, they're baptized for the dead, and it's inconsistent. Their own theology doesn't work. So read it in light of what Paul is saying. So you have to include that somehow, but include it the way Paul intended to include it. So they'll, people will take odd things from the Bible and elevate them to make them, this is the big part of my ministry. And you look at it and go, but the Bible has a lot to say about baptism. And, and you're not really focusing on that. You're focusing on baptism of the dead. What's going on there? That's what, what he's warning us about. He says they will take these hard-to-understand passages and they will twist them. They will turn them. They will grab them and turn them into something perverse, and it's to their own destruction. And by the way, they do this with the other scriptures. They do this with other writings as well, the other writings as well. Paul says, or Peter says that Paul is, Paul's writing our scriptures. In other words, what he's just said is, just like the Old Testament, those scriptures, they'll distort Paul's writings, those scriptures as well. He's putting Paul on par with the Old Testament. They're, they're scriptures. This is the doctrine of inspiration. So the question was, did, did the early church know that what they were writing was inspired? I think they did. <laughs> I think they did. And let me give you another example from, from uh, First Peter, or First Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. Paul writes, he says, For the scriptures say, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So Paul calls these two quotes scriptures. The you shall not muzzle the ox comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25. So he's quoting the Old Testament. And you just don't think about where the laborer is worth his wages comes from. Well, that comes from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. Peter just quoted Luke as scripture and put it on the same authoritative level as Deuteronomy. So do you see where Peter's going with this when he says they distort Paul's writing as they do the rest of the scriptures? What we're getting is this picture of a complete canon. The, the teaching of the apostles is on par with the Old Testament, and they knew it. So when, when, he, when Peter wants us to grow in grace, when he wants us to have a clear knowledge of Jesus Christ, he points to the Old Testament, and he tells us stories from the Old Testament, and then he turns around and he cites Paul. He says, this is the wisdom that God has given Paul. He writes these things to you. So I'm about to depart. I'm not going to be here forever. I know the Lord has made it clear to me that I'm going to die soon. Therefore, to grow in grace, to continue to grow in grace, focus on the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. I think that's an incredible statement that those two things are right there. So therefore, he goes, he goes on to uh, verse 17. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, that's not just to the first century church, that's to us as well. You know false teachers are coming. You know they're going to be there. You know what they're going to do. They're going to twist and distort the scriptures. They're going to take 
obscure passages and make them the, uh, the entire basis of their ministry. They're not going to necessarily go to other verses of the Bible to try to understand a more complex issue in light of all of that. They're going to distort these things. They're doing it to their own destruction. And one of the clearest ways you can identify them is their sensuality, which could be, like I said, sexual. It could be their pride. They'll come and they'll, they'll be very proud about, I've got this one verse and it tells us everything we need to know. And, and anybody who questions me must be wrong. And they're filled with this pride. If you come and you rebuke them, they will not repent. You are the problem, not me, you. You're the problem. You clearly don't understand the scriptures. So this is, this is what he's saying. He says, no, since you know this beforehand, take care. Be aware of these things. Know that it's coming. So when you hear some brand new teaching that nobody has ever taught in the entire history of the church, that should be a gigantic red flag. Now, now look at the person teaching it. What are they doing? Are they talking about themselves mostly and how important they are and what they've done for everybody? Another red flag. Know beforehand that this is coming and take care. What he wants us to take care of is, he says, take care that you are not carried away. The, the reason that these false teachings work is because they're appealing. They feel good. They, they, they appeal to us in a very natural, kind of normal way. So we have to not be carried away by them. We have, you can look at them, and you can study them, and you can you know, ask some questions, but don't be carried away by them, by the errors of lawless people, and lose your stability. They're lawless. They, they're not looking at how we are to grow in grace, by being diligent to add to our faith virtue and to our virtue steadfastness. They're not looking at those things. They're looking at someplace else, something more physical, something more self-pleasing. When actually, if you just grow in grace, that will be pleasing. It just takes longer. They're going to offer you the shortcut. And he says, and don't be carried away by these lawless people and lose your own stability. He doesn't say lose your salvation. The people who are, who are with him will be with him. What you lose is your stability, your, able, your ability to stand in a, in a confusing and a fallen world, and, a, and your ability to stand when the world is tempting you with all these wonderful, fleshy kind of cool things to be able to stand firm. We have a stability. That's what we need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's his great and precious promises, the true knowledge of who Jesus is. We have the scriptures to back that up. Don't let false teachers come and shake that stability that you've been given. It's not worth it. It's not going to pay off in the end. So verse 18, which I think is really the, the thesis of the entire book, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not, it would be a nice idea. It's not, you will grow. It is a command, grow. Now, how are we supposed to do that? Well, that's what Second Peter has been teaching us. That's what he's been pointing us to. We grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those two go together. We grow to be more like him when we see he is more appealing than the false teachers. Than, than the indulgences of the flesh. He is more beautiful than the, the false sense of importance that I might drum up in myself by adopting these things. Jesus is better than all of that. So grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Become more like Jesus, which is, by the way, becoming less like the false teachers. And so Peter ends his, his great epistle, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.
To him be the glory. When it's him that we're modeling ourselves after, when it's him that we're looking to and saying, this is the image to which I am to be conformed, he gets the glory. We don't. We didn't invent this. We didn't gin it up and, and make ourselves to be more like that. To him be the glory now. Even in this time between his first coming and his second coming, even in these days when righteousness doesn't quite dwell here yet, wickedness dwells here quite a bit. Even in these days, to him be glory now, today, this morning, and to the day of eternity. It won't ever fade. He, notice he doesn't say to the end of time. Time will end, and eternity will keep going. So to him be the glory both now and forever, never-ending time. May he always be glorified. So brothers and sisters, this is our commission. This is our command. This is what our apostle wants us to do. He wants you to grow in grace. You have been saved by grace through faith, by trusting in Jesus, by trusting in his great and very precious promises, you are saved. What Peter wants us to do is now begin to grow into what you currently have been changed to. That renewed heart of yours, that, that new mind, that new spirit of yours, begin to live in accordance with that. And he promises it's not going to be easy. So he uses terms like be diligent, take care. He understands the life we live now is, is perilous. Don't get knocked off your stability, but continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ until the day of eternity, knowing that we have a deliverance at the end. There is a, an arrival point, the place where we land, the struggle's over. The difficulty is gone. Righteousness dwells there. What a beautiful hope we have. So I really appreciated what Joel was doing this morning with Habakkuk. Is Habakkuk's looking around and going, man, this is a mess. And yet has this eschatological vision going, but God. But God is going to come. And God's going to judge our enemies. And God's going to deliver his people. And that's been true throughout the entire Old Testament. It's true now. And it'll be true in the future. So when the bad news comes, when the threats arrive, but God. And, and, and remember Habakkuk's great prayer. 